All right. Well, good morning, church. Again, it is so good, so good to be in front of you, and I am eager to uh, expound the truths of God's Word with you. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians or your Ephesians journal to chapter 1, and we are in Ephesians 1 still. As Obviously, we just began this series last week, and this is uh, we are going to be in the book of Ephesians for quite some time. We went through verses 1 through 6 last week, and... Um, we will be going through verses 7 through 10 this morning. Hopefully you grabbed an outline on your way in. That outline will be our guide through God's word this morning. And the answers will be provided on the screen behind me as we move along. But uh, it has been just a tremendous day together already. As we've already seen God's word declared through baptism. We've read God's word. We've declared God's word through song. And so now we're coming to God's word to be fed uh, once more. Now this morning, as I said, just marks the second session in our new series in Ephesians. And we got kicked off last week. We looked at some historical background info. We saw how Paul is writing this letter from prison in Rome for the sake of uh, preaching the gospel while awaiting trial. But this was his goal because he was eager to get to Rome and he knew this was the quickest way to do it. And while he's there, he's in prison and he writes the letter to the church at Ephesus and he writes the letter to the church at Colossae. And so uh, we have some of our prison epistles. And here in the book of Ephesians last week, we saw Paul root his own identity in the person of Christ as well as the identity of the Ephesian church. And so that challenged us to see that our identity is rooted in our creator. And then in verse 3, we looked at the beginning of this long acclamation of praise with verse 3 beginning one sentence that carries all the way through verse 14. It doesn't appear that way in English, but that's how it appears in the original Greek. And so we began this long acclamation of praise for God's sovereign grace in our election. And this work of salvation flows from his love for us and is totally self-initiated by God and has nothing to do with our merit or ability as our two young people already proclaimed and testified to us this morning. And this morning we'll approach verses 7 through 10, where, uh, which are, excuse me, overflowing with deep theological and practical truths for us to dwell on and to live in. We'll break these down according to five main points that you see there on your outline this morning. As every letter of this book really contains in it points for us to dwell on the eternal work of Christ on the cross and the praise of God's grace displayed there. And so with that being said, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time in honor of the reading of God's word as we look at Ephesians 1, and I read verses 7 through 10. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of God. Lord, we thank you for your word and pray that as we seek to delve the truths that it holds this morning, we pray that it would wash over us, that it would uh, convict us where necessary, that it would encourage us where necessary, and that it would move us to respond in obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. So I want to remind us of one of the things that I, I pointed out to us last week, which is Paul's structure of this letter. You see chapters 1 through 3 are written with a focus on theology and doctrine of who Christ is and what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And then we move to chapters 4 through 6 which are focused on how the church is to put that doctrine to practice. On how doctrine moves our feet in obedience. I'll continue to remind us of this structure as we move forward because it provides us with such a solid framework for how to interpret and apply this text. Because there are those who would say, you can keep your doctrine, but just give me Jesus. But the problem with that logic, however well-intentioned it may be or ill-intentioned, whichever one, is that if that same person were forced to explain who Jesus is and the significance of what Jesus has done, well, their explanation would be one of doctrine. And so that's why it is in incredibly important that we see Paul's aim for the church at Ephesus here is to be our aim, that we have a solid and firm foundation in God's word of who Jesus is and what he came to do and how that was God's plan set forth from the foundation of the world because then that is how we understand how we're to live in light of that. And that's our goal each time we come to God's word is to see who he is and how he's revealed himself in his word and then see how that prompts our hearts to respond in repentance and move forward in obedience. And so Paul's aim for the church to have a solid scripture-soaked doctrinal understanding of who Jesus is and his relationship to the Father and how that affects us as well as that is our goal when we come to God's word. So we see there in verse seven, as this is uh, getting to the middle of this one long acclamation of praise and these, each word, each letter this morning, as I've already said in my introduction, but it's true, is, is soaked with deep theological truths that move us. So we see in verse seven, in him we have redemption. Now we'll pause right there. Because we're going to break verse 7 up several times here and look at each little truth that carries with it large, significant implications. Did you feel the weight of significance in that statement? In Him, we have redemption. That in Him, that is Christ, and in Christ alone, do we, who are ultimately unworthy, have redemption. That word redemption means to be brought back, to be made new, to be made whole again. That in Christ, we who were once broken without a Savior now are whole with 
him and in him. The very thing which makes us right before a just and holy God is that we have been made new. But what have we been made new from? From what? From a sinful life of self-indulgence. Do you grasp the immense importance of that? No, because it is often hard for, for me to grasp this importance of just this one simple phrase. Because too often we become so desensitized to the sheer enormity of what has been accomplished for us in Christ that we read over statements like that as, in him we have redemption. No, in him we, who are ultimately unworthy, have redemption. We project away our own sin by magnifying the sins of others. We justify our sin by somehow thinking that our intentions are noble. But let us not miss everything that this simple phrase encapsulates. In him we have redemption. Christ has brought us back from a life of sin and shame. How marvelous a truth that we who were once sheep wandering without a shepherd are now the sheep of his pasture. And all of it is according to his doing. Because it's in him. And this is what Paul is explaining as we unpacked last week. That blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. We who once had nothing to cling to now have an imperishable inheritance. As we looked at last week, we see verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. And I pointed out last week, this is not to the exclusion of our sisters in the faith. But that rather what it is expounding upon and what Paul is pointing out is the Old Testament practice of the, the inheritance of the oldest son. The son was due the inheritance of the family. And that once the father passed away, the inheritance naturally went to him. Well, in Christ, all of us have the rights of the firstborn son. And so our adoption by grace guarantees our inheritance of redemption. And that's our first point on this morning's outline, that our adoption by grace guarantees our inheritance of redemption. As this is what we saw in verses 5 through 6. As I just unpacked verse 5 for us. But this is, as we see, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That all who are in Christ have been predestined to adoption as sons. Meaning we've all been grafted into the family of God with Jesus as our big brother. And therefore, we have the same rights as Jesus. And these are rights that come from and to the praise of God's grace. Meaning, these are not rights that we were, had the right to claim. These are not rights that we were rightfully to own. But these are rights that in Him, we have access to. So it's God's grace and God's grace alone which guarantees our inheritance. And what is our inheritance? That we get to be made right before a just and holy God. And not just made right, 
but we get to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places as Paul expounded just a few verses earlier. Now, as great as this is to marvel at and as good as it makes us feel, it comes with a challenge. And that challenge is that we can't simply say that we are redeemed and then our lives not look any different than the world around us or look any different than our past self. And that one might be even a little bit more pointed. If we have truly been brought back, then there is no going back. So that's why we have the sub point there under that first main point. That our adoption by grace guarantees our inheritance of redemption and a redeemed life produces regenerate fruit. A redeemed life produces regenerate fruit. He has redeemed us that we may be holy and blameless before him. He has redeemed us that we may be in right relationship with him. And so we cannot allow ourselves to settle for mediocrity when it comes to living out our faith. But we must realize that the entire point of our faith, the purpose of what God is doing in us is producing holy living to the praise of his glory and grace. So we who have been bought at such a price cannot in any way afford to live a life that would have Jesus' death be in vain. And so this is why we must flee from sin that so easily entangles us. This is why we must take every thought captive. This is why we crucify the flesh. All so that we may live lives of holiness. Now will we fail? Will we live lives of unholiness at times? Will we stumble back into past sins or stumble into new sins? Absolutely. But what you'll notice is that the times we fail are the times when we are reliant on our own ability and our own understanding and our own power and not on the work of the Spirit within us. But that even goes to show the deep nature of his grace. That it was his grace poured out on us on the cross that redeemed us. And it's his grace that keeps us in those moments when we still fail. I want to read you this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Christians can never sin cheaply. Christians can never sin cheaply. They pay a heavy price for iniquity. Because transgression destroys peace of mind, obscures fellowship with Jesus, hinders prayer, brings darkness over the soul, and therefore, we must not be the serf or the bondman of sin. In him, we have been brought back. So there is no going back. In him, we've been made new. Redemption from what? Brought back from what? sin. And so when we look at our lives and we see rotten sinful fruit, we need to do some deep self-analysis to say, is this coming from a heart that has not been regenerate? Or when we look at our life and see the regenerate fruit, we praise God for his grace to produce that in us. 
And this is why Paul calls the church saints, holy ones, those who are being made holy. This is why we read in verse 4 that the purpose of his choosing us was that we may be holy and blameless. Not because we were or are, but that so we may be. And that is precisely why the cost of our redemption was greater than we could ever afford. The cost of our redemption was greater than we could ever afford. We continue reading there in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. In Leviticus, we see the establishment of the sacrificial system of atonement. Each verse is excruciatingly detailed as to exactly how sins known and unknown must be atoned for. What animal or grain atones for which sin and when it is appropriate to make which offering and how you are to prepare yourself for said offering. Each verse is so vivid in its detail of the immense cost of our sin and the weight of justice that looms over those who are guilty. All of it pointing us to the reality that we can't keep up without the grace of God. As we read each detail in Leviticus and see the intricate nature of the sacrificial system, it shows just how thin the line is that holds that weight of justice above our heads that we just deserve to have hammered down on us. But it also shows how deep the grace of God to provide the one true sacrifice in Jesus because all of it is pointing ultimately to Christ as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. We see this in the book of Hebrews. I'll encourage you to turn there, Hebrews chapter 10, or it'll be on the screen for you. But Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews refers to this very fact, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Did you notice that statement? It can never make perfect those who draw near. That the, the Old Testament sacrificial system was but a shadow of things to come. Was but a large arrow pointing to the coming of Christ. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. So the author of Hebrews says, like, in other words, if if that was successful, if the Old Testament sacrificial system was sufficient, then why are they still making offerings? But that wasn't the point of the system. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, this is the good part. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings 
you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. So Christ was pointing to himself as the prepared body for the ultimate sacrifice, which the system of sacrifice was meant to point to. The author of Hebrews here points to the reality that we saw there read that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and doves could never and were never meant to forgive sin, but were a mere shadow of what was to come. All of the Old Testament sacrificial system was just a big arrow pointing to the coming of Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews actually points to this even earlier uh, before chapter 10, right there in verse 9, uh, verses, uh, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 11 through 14, we see, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered. So Christ entered the tent, the more perfect tent. He entered once for all into the holy places, so where we could not go on our own or for ourselves, Christ entered there for us. Not my, by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We have been redeemed. In him we have been redeemed through his blood. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, redemption through the blood of Christ is essential. Because the sheer amount of blood required to accommodate the sacrificial needs in order to atone for us would be immense. Were we still under the law, we would have no hope. So at the cross, the blood poured out was more than enough to credit our account as paid. The blood of sacrificial animals was but a temporary covering of sin, of sanctification, a means of pointing that allowed people to worship, that allowed them to live out God's law. But eventually, another sacrifice had to be made, and another, and another, and another. But now, Christ is the once for all. I also want to point us to that next reality that we see there in verse 7. In him, we have redemption. We're back in Ephesians now. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You see our next sub point on our outline there, the price of our redemption was set from the foundation. The price of our redemption was set from the foundation. It was enough to cover the forgiveness of our trespasses, which we had not yet even done. We saw there in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Where if we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, then he knew before the foundation of the world the price that he would pay for bringing us back to himself. Perhaps one of the more overlooked mysteries of the cross is the aspect that it was in view 
from before the foundation of the world. If indeed, as I said, he chose us in him before the foundation, that we who are holy, unholy, should be holy and blameless. We who were holy, unholy, should be made holy and blameless through the sacrifice of Christ. If indeed he predestined us for adoption to himself, that is to bring us in when we were apart. Through Jesus, through Jesus then, from the foundation, the price of our redemption was known and the price of our redemption was fixed. I ask you to turn or just look on uh, with a brother or sister or look on the screen to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we see Jesus speaking here. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Jesus here speaking to a crowd and he highlights the cost of what it takes to follow him, but even that cost in and of itself highlights the cost that he was going to pay for us to be able to follow him. So Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that's not quite the catchy statement to catch and bring in a bunch of visitors or people who you would want to join your movement. But that's not his goal. And nor is he telling them to go home and tell mom, I hate you. He's saying, if you're not willing to weigh what following me is about to cost you, and that is excommunication from family, abandonment of work, abandonment of worldly riches, abandonment of everything that you thought was valuable in this life. If you're not willing to say to all of that life that you pictured for yourself, I hate that in view of knowing what is true and good, then you cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Whoever is not willing to pay the price that I am walking to pay, cannot be my disciple. Verse 28, for which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So Jesus here saying to this great crowd is saying in full view of what lays before him, 
because what lay before him was in full view from eternity past, as we said. With the cross in view, he tells us to do the same thing, to have the same full view of the cost of discipleship. That if we're going to follow Christ, we must follow him in every aspect, especially when it comes to knowing the cost of our redemption. That is, ourselves, bearing our own cross. If the cost of our redemption was Christ, then why would we expect the cost of our discipleship, the cost of us living out that redemption, to be any less than our entire self? Better yet, why would we worship as though the cost of our redemption were Christ and then live as though we could keep a little bit to ourselves? The price was set from eternity that we may dwell with him eternally. Therefore, we must live with eternity in view. But as we see there in verse 6, this all flows from and is to the praise of his glorious grace, which means that just as we receive redemption as a means of grace from the start, it is precisely because of that grace that we cannot lose our salvation along the way. So that as we come to Christ by the grace of his drawing us, we then continue on in faith, growing in our knowledge and our understanding of him through his word, which inevitably means that we are in a constant process of putting to death the old self and uncovering new parts of our flesh, uncovering new struggles, uncovering new sins, which also must be put to death. But the good news is that Jesus died for those sins too, meaning that we must die to those things. Ask anyone who's walked the life of faith for any amount of time, and we will tell you that the longer we've been a believer, the less worthy we've felt. We'll testify to God's grace to save us from not just the sins and struggles of yesterday, but the sins and struggles of just this morning. And that is grace. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And this is where, once again, Paul points. As we continue reading, we see the forgiveness and trespasses of our sins. We continue reading there in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. So the blood may have been sprinkled, but even that sprinkling was a lavish grace that keeps us to this day. Because he who spared no expense at paying the price for our redemption, he who spared no expense has an account of grace that never runs dry. That's our next point on this morning's outline. He who spared no expense has an account of grace that never runs dry. The grace which he has shown us and continues to show us is not merely the scraps or just the leftover excess, but he has poured out his grace on us in full measure. And the best part is, the well never runs dry, so that grace is still being poured out. 
The grace which was measured for us in eternity past, poured out on us now, and is lavished in quantity. And we'll get to experience that same lavished grace for eternity future. This is the good news. That we who are enemies of God, by our choosing, by choosing to follow our own heart, by choosing to follow our way of life, are brought near to God by sovereign grace and given a seat at his table. So those who are redeemed do not live lifestyles of lavish wealth, but instead we live lifestyles of lavished grace. See, this crushes the prosperity gospel. Because if all God lavished on us were temporary, physical, material goods, how sad would that life be? If that's all he was out to do was was bless us in this life now, then what, what good does that do us in eternity? Instead, what he's lavished on us are riches, yes, but the riches of his grace, the blood of Christ, blessings in the heavenly places. He's lavished on us things of eternal value. And how are we even able to consider these things? How are we able to deal with these concepts, trifle with these truths revealed in his word? Well, we continue reading there in verse 8. Sorry, I'll start back in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, here it is, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. You see, church, the pathway of wisdom proceeds from the cross. It is through the lens of the cross that we are able to properly see and understand and interact with this world. It's through the lens of the cross that we are able to know God's grace to us. It's through the lens of the cross that we are able to attain wisdom. As this is the goal. This is the goal of wisdom literature. We see this in Proverbs Chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I got so excited about baptism, I forgot to put my, my markers in my place. Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 1. There we go. My son, do not forget my teaching. So this is wisdom speaking. But let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all Your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. But it keeps going. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And then, if you'll skip down to verse 19, see this. 
The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. So the very thing which the Lord founded the earth upon, which he himself is the creator of wisdom, the creator of knowledge, that is the very thing which he enacted and used in all wisdom and insight to make known to us the mystery of his will. That's what it took to make our feeble human minds understand the mystery of his will. That if the wisdom of this world could provide us happiness, then why do the routes, why do the paths, why do the different things that this world seeks and that the wisdom of this world tells us to find, why do the truths Why do all these things keep changing? Because none of it can. Drugs, alcohol, sex, money, gender, power. The list goes on. All of these things we're told. Seek this. Happiness is here. Find your true self. Why does it keep changing then? Because happiness hasn't been found yet in those things. And it never will. This is the source of wisdom. This is what God used to make known to us the mystery of his will. But in all wisdom and insight, which are his to begin with, so once again, it's God who's initiating it by grace. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us who are feeble, whose thoughts and emotions are fleeting, whose mind cannot begin to comprehend the realities of the cross. He made us able to comprehend the realities of the cross. What was it that he made known to us? He made known to us the mystery of his will. It's through the lens of the cross that we're able to see and comprehend the grace of God's election and the mystery of his working it all together for his glory and our good. So you continue reading there in verse 9. So according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So once again, Christ was not plan B. Rather, in him was God's plan from the fullness of time. That is, when time is complete, according to God's will, In that moment, it will be the work of Christ that allows heaven and earth to be reunited. It will be the work of Christ that makes the old new. The atoning sacrifice that makes possible redemption. But in the present, God has given us a depiction of what that unity looks like, of what that redeeming, ultimate redeeming work looks like. He's given us a testimony of what he purchased for us by sending his son on the cross. And that testimony is us, his church. In his church, he has depicted what he is doing and bringing together that which was broken. In his church, he's brought together those who were broken, who are now redeemed and made one in him. 
the cost of redemption paid for our unity. The same price that paid for our redemption paid for our unity in him so that we can testify to his coming judgment, so that we can make known his sovereign grace and eagerly await his uniting all things according to his will. In the meantime, church, let us live redeemed, producing regenerate fruit, savoring the cost of our redemption, delighting in God's grace, and walking unified for his glory. Because in him, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. In Christ is all fullness. In Christ is true life to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we are so thankful for your love for us, because it is your love for us that makes us even able to comprehend our love for one another and our love for you. We love because you first loved us. And we thank you for the price that you paid for our redemption. Help us to produce regenerate fruit. God, we thank you for the grace that sustains us as we seek to put to death the old way of life each day. This morning I pray for those of us who are in you that this message would be convicting and emboldening to walk forward in obedience, to savor these things and to not become numb to them. Lord, if there be anybody in here that is not in you, My prayer for them is that you would convict them as well. Bring them to yourself. Reveal to them what you have revealed to all of us, which is our sinfulness. And reveal to them the overwhelming grace of your redemption that you bought with the blood of Christ. Be with us now as we sing and be with us as we continue to celebrate this morning. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.